All right, welcome back everyone uh, to Trader Chats, uh, and it's another one of those macro Avenger sessions you've all been waiting for. Uh, we're going to do a Q4 roundtable. We've got the Hulk there in the middle, as you can see. Uh, Darius Dale, aka Darius Dale from 42 Macro, he probably needs no introduction. Uh, and then we've got Tony Greer from TG Macro. Welcome guys, how's it going? Hey Imran, what's up buddy? Tony, what's up? How are you guys, man? It's good to get the gang back together for another combo, man. The world's changing at light speed, huh? It is, man. It is. I was just joking with you, man. Every time I see your pretty face on one of these, I'm about to get squeezed in the market. So, <laughs> Market goes That's up when we go on tape. Exactly. All right. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm just going to quick. So last time we got together, I think it was late July. And uh, we were all pretty adamant about the market having not seen the bottom yet. Although we were in the middle of a bit of a short squeeze, which Tony was very fully playing. The rest of us were kind of waiting patiently to resell it, I think. Um, and then that rally kind of continued into the middle of August. And then the markets obviously rolled over as we continued to see more sticky inflation uh, and yields started ratcheting higher again. Um, so now recently, we've seen a similar sort of setup where markets made new lows. Uh, they bounced pretty strongly off the bottom. They got a whiff of the idea that the Fed is going to slow down after the November meeting that's coming up after um, San Francisco Fed President Daly's comments. Uh, we also got the Nikki leaks, as it's now being uh, popularized. Um, the guy in the Wall Street Journal who kind of pretty much tells you what the Fed's going to do. Um, so the market's cottoned onto that and seems to be trying to rally right now and squeeze. Um, what do you guys think? I mean, Darius, why don't you start us off and just kind of in the context of that, I think we've lost Darius, have we? <laughs> That's a good start. I guess we're going to have to go over to you, Tony. Oh, there Darius, is. back. Okay. Oh, did I freeze? Oh, sorry. My apologies. Yeah, yeah. disappeared. But yeah, no worries. Let yeah, do so you want to give us your kind of... Um, your general sort of outlook at the minute and kind of in the context of what I'm saying about this squeeze that's ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. So I always think it's a good, um, good practice, you know, just because we have different, um, you know, different types of investors watching to kind of think about the world and different durations, um, you know, sort of from a risk management perspective, we tend to focus on things that happen occur, you know, under one calendar year, that tends to be where most of the volume and actions and, and, and trading tends to take place. And if you think about it on a sort of six to 12 month forward basis, uh, we're pretty sure that we we know that we're going to wind up in a state where the Fed is very clearly pausing, assessing the damage that is done to the economy through the you know long and variable lags that monetary policy tends to work uh, through the economy in terms of um, you know trying to achieve its inflation objectives. Um, that you know sort of the, the path to getting to that state is likely to occur over the next few months. Um, you know, which is the Fed will sort of signal officially to market participants that. Um, you know, sort of it's concluded it's it's rate hiking process um, and it's about to do that. So um, it's our view that that process there is likely to contribute to some upside uh, tail risk and right tail risk in the market, uh, just given what positioning is and given what sentiment is. The problem with the, that from our perspective, and again, this is our view and we can debate this uh, later in the presentation, is that I don't know that the path to getting to that pause is as clear as the markets are probably interpreting it. Um, this week, and again, we're recording here on on, on Tuesday, October 25th. Um, it's our view, you know, there's a couple of inflation reports between November 2nd and um, December 14th um, uh, Fed meeting, and it's not clear to us from the perspective of how strong and resilient the U.S. economy has been that we're going to see any materially positive dynamics on the inflation front, particularly with respect to core inflation. So 
Um, we think there's certainly risk relative to a lot of the incremental positioning in the market between now and let's call it, I don't know, December 14th. Uh, and then probably beyond December 14th, there's probably some upside risk associated with, again, the, the, the market eventually moving to that pause. Um, we'll talk a little bit later beyond that. You know, you're, you still have to kind of live in a world with a 5% uh, Fed, terminal Fed funds rate and what that ultimately means for the economy. Um, we do believe we're headed for a hard landing uh, at the end of this rainbow. And unfortunately, that hard landing has not been adequately priced in. So um, 2023 is likely to be quite as volatile as 2022 just probably not um, kind of one direction to the downside. Interesting. Tony, you want to jump in? Uh, I can't take my eyes off the S&P right, rally right now, Iran. I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Um, That's good you're no, wrong, mate. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, it's good to get confirmation that you're right every once in a while, right, Iran? I mean, we did a lot of sweating down at 3,600. Um, when you talk when I when I talk about the you know where the tape is, I talk about it within the context of sort of the price action and this move and the way that it's taking place. Um, you know, we got the market back down to the lows when the macro world was literally exploding, right? When dollar yen was sprinting through the 140s, gilt market was coming apart, um, and that was what was putting so much stress on the S and P and the VIX. And then along comes the Bank of England. And whether it is successful or not in the end, we don't know yet. But so far, the line that they've drawn in the sand and the guilt market has held. And then we got to a point where dollar yen went to 150, which is sort of, to me, very conspicuously a 50% devaluation from the range that had been in in the last, call it the Trump administration, right? right? Before the heavy inflation set in. So now you see dollar yen getting to that point where the Bank of Japan steps in and automatically what you have is sort of the cooler heads prevailing at the macro table and slowing down the volatility in the macro world. Now, what is that leading us to in the stock market? That slower, that slowdown of volatility in the equity world is allowing equity investors to take a breath, realize how, how cheap things are. And then sort of drill down into the price action if you're a short-term trader like me. When we broke 3,600 the other day, uh, last Thursday, and had that 2% spill followed by a 2% recovery, you know, as I always, we always used to say on the floor of the exchanges, that's a good low, right? You can lean on that low now and trade the other way. And, you know, it takes a lot to get out of that hole, as you can see, but eventually, you get a positive feedback loop. You get leadership out of commodities. You get the dollar to back off and all of a sudden touch its 50-day moving average for the first time in a long time. You got rates not all of a sudden making new highs. And all of a sudden, um, you know, the short position in that massive sentiment bubble of negativity that we've been blowing, they some of them, the last, one, the last ones in certainly have got to run for cover. And I think that's probably what you're seeing here. I just think that this particular move is going to have a lot of legs to it because we have, we are in a serious negative sentiment bubble. Um, you know, we've seen things like the put call ratio go completely berserk. I just think there's a lot of unwinding of the shortness and bearishness that needs to come out. So that's where we're set up. You know, you guys are spot on. And, and you know, I kind of follow you guys when it comes to Federal Reserve uh, for guidance. And um, I agree that they're going to be in a bit of a pickle here with the economic data getting worse and the inflation getting worse at the same time. So they're going to have to pick what they address. And like I said, I defer to you guys. So that's my take right now. 
Yeah, so so I, I get the sense for what you're saying is there's a lot of technical reasons why we needed to rally. We got some strong price action of bad inflation data, which is obviously a good signal that things are just a bit too bared up. We're now starting to see that compression back of volatility that was very elevated. And generally, when that happens, you do get a bit of a relief rally. So the question really for me is, is this going to be another short squeeze that's going to be short-lived and probably make a lower high? So last time we got to 43.25, which was at 200-day, where do we anticipate this set rally could get to? Are we talking about 4,000, 41.50, something like that? And then we're, look, we're taking off all our longs and looking down again because the odds are that the Fed doesn't get to give us the pivot that we're all looking for because the data doesn't allow it, basically. So is that where... Is that, I mean, I get the sense that's what Darius sees coming, but Tony, where do you see a target for the upside potentially? Yeah, I'm, you know, right in the ballpark of ranges that you just threw out. I could see the S&P going to the 200-day moving average resistance up at 4135 or so. I mean, at that point is where I would like to be letting out a good bit of my tactical trading long. And from there, I kind of take a fresh breath because things can get a little bit hairy if the options position is as short as it looks like, right? That, that's where you have all kinds of crazy, you know, um, Delta coverage stories. You have all kinds of crazy strikes coming into play. And that's where the upside could get a little bit hairy. So I'm, I'm prepared for that. I've got some set of probability assigned for that. But I think we're going to be in an orderly trade higher here to the 200 day. And I would be looking to pivot my book the short side there because this seems like a pretty damaged S&P. And we're heading into the last few months of the year where you generally see things heading in the same direction, only more furiously into the end of the year. And that's just an observation that I've made over the years. Okay. Yeah. So and we're seeing, you know, TLT has been in free fall recently and it's having a 3% bounce today. There's been some chat about some sort of operation twist-like action coming out of the Treasury, not the Fed. Uh, and I think that's kind of helping this bond market bounce. Um, I guess over to Darius, like, where do you see these yields getting to on the upside, right? I mean, if, if a pause or a pivot maybe isn't on the cards yet based on the macro and based on the fact that inflation is going to be as stickier than the market kind of wants it to be, then how high do you see these U.S. yields actually going? Uh, and do you think the re-steepening that we started to see continues? Yeah. So, I mean, look, the, the yields are going to go until they're as high enough to make you, me, and Tony buy bonds. Right? Like, that's that's the goal of this exercise is to get the Fed. The, the Fed is trying to get you from making speculative investments and over-consuming and putting pressure on supply chains, both uh, goods and, and, and services, and to put that money into safer uh, U.S. government securities. Clearly, they have not found the appropriate level from the perspective of the volatility that we're continuing to observe in the bond market. You know, we've had a view on for you know nearly two months now that we're probably going to see somewhere north of four and a half percent on the ten-year, um, probably north of two percent on the ten-year tips yield. Um, we're probably you know, we're a little bit closer to that on the nominal, but on, on, the, on the tips, we're probably a little bit you know 35, 40 basis points away. So. Um, we're not so quite, we're not sure that the market is, is is fully priced in, you know, sort of the you know kind of the the stickiness, if you will, of inflation. You know, we've been talking about at 42 Macro how the disinflation process from the cycle peak is proving itself to be sticky and stochastic, and that sort of non-autocorrelated, non-aggressive, you know, nature of this, this process is likely to kind of force you know 
bond, kind of a, a buyer strike in the bond market, which we're obviously observing on our streams, you know, albeit you know, absent the move we're seeing today. Yeah, and, and normally you would have expected like tech stocks to be under pressure, given how under pressure bonds were, but they, they started to dislocate. Did you put that down to these sort of technical factors within the equity market? As, and people are just saying, well, if, if we're going to get a squeeze, I want to own this high beta tech stuff. And may, maybe it's a bit of pre-positioning for earnings. We've got the big tax, big techs reporting this week. What, what do you think? Why, why is NASDAQ diverging from bonds the way it has been? Yeah, absolutely. So I think flows is probably the number one and two answer. You know, there's a couple of things we look at at 42 Macro to track flows. Um, from a short-term perspective, we have our crowding model where we're looking at the relationship between uh, various measures of volatility, risk premium, uh, ones that back test the best, and you know the ratio and deviations in, in realized volatility. And you know, heading into this week, it's pretty clear that markets were in a state that sort of suggested we should see some pretty, um, you know, pretty decent returns to start this week. Uh, that signal was followed by a pretty negative signal uh, on on the long side of the VIX, which obviously would add fuel to the fire from Havana. Um, flow perspective. So I think we're getting the confluence of these technical, these very immediate term technical factors, you know, kind of overwhelm, you know, what I believe is becoming an increasing disconnect between deteriorating macro fundamentals and, you know, sort of, um, you know, these positive flow dynamics, you know, but, I mean, we saw in August, you know, some of these flow dynamics really get us, um, you know, get us um, to the upside, you know, kickstart kick you know, what was very ferocious and sustained, you know, two month bear market rally to the upside. The one thing I would say is this flows only get you so far from my perspective. Um, you know, what we saw in, in throughout the month of July and throughout the month of August, we saw you know, nearly $300 billion expansion in U.S. dollar net liquidity, which we can touch on in a second. And we also saw money market rate price in three rate cuts at the, at the lows in terms of the delta we observed in one year, one month forward overnight index swaps. And so you know, that's something that we talked about at the time is, Hey, we're in this phase two of the global liquidity cycle downturn, whereby phase two is where the market starts to price in the dovish Fed pivot. That's going to come from the other side of all the slowing the Fed is causing. Well, we're not in phase two anymore. Uh, Jay Powell's more or less slammed the door shut on that twice, really, regarding a Jackson Hole and obviously at the September FOMC. And it's our belief that they're going to continue to slam the door shut on these sort of phase two type expectations in the marketplace, which in our view limits the upside and the scope for any sort of bear market rally this particular interval. And the rates market has kind of priced that that we're not going to get this sudden U-turn necessarily next year. And they've kind of pushed it more into 2024, it seems, right, in terms of... Those those cuts. What about you, Tony? What, what do you think on yields? Do you think yields have got room still to go a lot higher, like Darius thinks, or, or are you in, you're in a different camp there? Uh, I do overall um, in, in the short term. I feel uh, Imran, is there a chance you could turn down your volume? I think that might be what's giving us um, a little bit. I'm getting a big reverb off of what me and Darius were saying. I think it might be because your mic is up and you don't have headphones. Yeah, let's try it, that. It, it yeah. might not be, but but I'll keep going. Um, my only, my only point on, uh, yeah, yield yields, it's hard for me to make, uh, you know, to, to do anything other than observe trend and kind of understand what it's doing to my trades in the equity market right now. Um, but the only thing that I do see is I see potential reversal in the two year yield that coincides with the bank of Japan intervention. You know, I've got technical indicators like the Tom. Thornton type of DMARC stuff that shows that yields are getting, you know, ahead of themselves and potentially overbought in the short term. You know, it's just something that would require potentially a pullback to moving average support. 
you know, and, and to stay within trend for a little bit more of a healthy rally so that it's not a sort of, you know, runaway Icarus print type of trade, because that's what you, when the market gets scared for a real bond market dislocation, you know, when yields were in the two year were kind of ramping and ramping and ramping, that was the risk was, are we going to come in? Yeah, we're going to come in Monday morning to a 50 basis point bond dislocation and everybody's going, oh shit. You know, and and a potential Black Monday equity slide. In the UK. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that. So that is exa- in the UK. Yeah, a hundred percent. So it's just kind of wrestling that, and it looks like you know bond volatility has calmed down a little. I'm not saying that it's over because I mean the bond market volatility is going to be with us. As you mentioned, we've got a big reversal today in yields, with now an island reversal in the TLT market which was off 48% from its peak at one point, you know, like just utterly destroying everything in its path. So I feel like the dollar, broadly speaking, you know, the dollar got to the point where it was breaking things and people had to come in and kind of calm everything down, meaning the Bank of England and Bank of Japan. And I just think from this direction, the trajectory should be lower in yields just to sort of take a little bit of heat off of the market that they've been feeling. I don't want to go in the wrong direction with this uh, part of the conversation that we want. Yeah, but within the context of a trend higher still in yields, it's just just like just like we're thinking it's probably a corrective bounce in stocks still. Similarly, it's probably a collect a corrective pullback in yields because the trend is likely still higher. Fair to say? That is fair to say. And I also believe that because the longer we have an attack on energy supply, the longer we have a lack of investment. The longer we start to create this animosity between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, none of that stuff is bearish for energy prices. And to me, that is going to be sort of the lever that constantly forces the bond market to hand lower. That's why I agree with that. But it's it's all going to be part of the ebb and flow of trading. But yeah, that's how I think we wind up. Right, Tony, right. Tony, real quick, I, I just have a quick question on the um, on the strategic uh, midterm <laughs> release. Do you have any uh, sort of insights um, as to when we might start stop seeing the U.S. government sort of heavy hand over global energy markets, like when that, that trade might be over from their perspective? You know, we, we've got to be getting to the sixth or seventh inning, Darius, and, and nobody can really get an accurate handle on exactly how much is left, you know, that he can announce sales of. And then there's another congressional sale of oil that takes place, which is, you know, a couple of hundred thousand barrels that I'm sure he's going to try to ram down the market's throat before midterms. But uh, because that sale becomes eligible in October. So now, you know, any time during the course of the year, he can sell that oil. So there's another component to it, um, to the midterm, you know, the strategic midterm petroleum reserve. Um, and I don't have a clear answer, so I'm not going to go ahead and guess. But we are getting into the later innings of strategic midterm. Yeah, of there. I think yeah. So someone coined that brilliantly. I think it now it might have been zero hedge the first place I saw it, but I thought that was brilliant. But we're getting into the later innings of it, no matter what. Yeah, and heading towards midterms. The way you know, um, as Doomberg has pointed out, this administration has been playing the game with their cards open, right? They're playing poker with their cards open, and this is such a blatant attempt to lower the gas price into the midterms that I would be willing to say that we aren't going to be talking about what Biden thinks of gas prices in another three and a half, four weeks. So in my opinion, that's going to be, that's going to take the political motivation to keep using the SPR away and, you know, potentially take away the one major seller that we've been able to draw a circle around, you know, as, as oil merchants in the market and say, you know, the biggest seller in the market right now is the strategic petroleum reserve. 
And that's probably why the market is is held down below $90, $95. Otherwise, it would go shooting higher. So when we get to the end of that, you can expect an absolute, almost undoubted WT, uh, WTI crude oil rally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that point, you know, I started to notice in the in the oil volatility market, the skew is very much flipping back towards calls. It's not quite there yet, but you know, it, it's been for puts for ages now. The skew because you know people were thinking China's slowing down, world slowing down, demand's coming off, and you've got this big seller. But you've definitely in the last month started to see that be much more neutral. So the pricing calls versus puts being more neutral. So I think the, the vol market is cottoning onto the fact that there is some potential explosive upside coming. I mean, I, I'd like to see that actually flip to be a premium for calls to really believe in it. But it does look like some option players are coming in and selling puts and buying calls. Because That's really, thing, that's especially really. Especially if Biden's saying he's on the bid at seven. Great to hear. I was just going to say, Imran, that's that's really important to hear for this trade because to, to me, what I interpret that as is the options market is starting to figure out, you know, the OPEC side of the trade. You know, Joe Biden's been saying, here comes more strategic petroleum, here comes strategic petroleum, and OPEC turns around and says, well, that's going to mean a weaker economy, we're going to have to cut output, right? And the bond market, I mean, and yeah. the options market is saying, oh, there's the finally a counter move to this trade, right? So that balances things. So it's, it's interesting to hear that that's how the narrative in the options market is running as well, sort of more towards balance rather than downside skew. Yeah, exactly. All right. And um, I mean, we jumped onto commodities a bit earlier than I anticipated, but it's fine. Just the last thing on the Fed. Um, so a lot of people have kind of been keeping an eye on this net liquidity function. And I know you look at this quite closely, Darius, right? To get a sense of what the fair value for the S&P is, because they track really well when you include the TGA account and the reverse repo facility. So what's your thoughts on that in terms of heading into the end of the year? Um, and also, do you think, I mean, I, I feel people on Twitter are paying a bit too much attention to it in terms of day-to-day switches <laughs> of the market. I think it makes sense to see where the trend in that thing is going to give you some sense, right? But like, what's your take on it? Oh, so I'll start by saying, uh, I think we've created a monster here because I, I completely agree with you. It's not a very near-term tactical trading signal. Uh, mm-hmm. How we use the, the net liquidity function in our process is to understand sort of the momentum of the time series in the context of the forward, you know, guidance that we're receiving from the Fed. And we try to spot, you know, sort of big dislocations between net liquidity and the broader markets, um, you know, through the lens of, you know, correlation analysis, et cetera. And, you know, so one key, you know, one example of this would be going back to mid-August where, you know, net liquidity sort of petered out um, to the upside. We had a, had a, you know, sustained rally from the lows of June through uh, the upside kind of in early August and it kind of petered out. But we saw the stock market continue to, to, to rally strongly uh, into, you know, kind of the peak euphoria around kind of phase two um, Fed pivot dynamics. And then ultimately, we obviously saw the unwind of that pretty ferociously in the six weeks um, from kind of mid-August to late September. Um, so in terms of our outlook for net liquidity, um, you kind of let's let's break apart the, the core components individually. Because, again, you know, this is the number one thing that has been driving asset markets, not just in this particular market cycle, but since my career started in 2009. So until that yeah. model works, until the model breaks, I think we have to at least the bare minimum, um, you know, pay homage to it as investors and understand kind of where it's likely headed. Um, we know where it's headed from the perspective of the Fed's quantitative tightening program. So that's a, a 95 billion a month thereabouts governor 
on on the um, or sort of decay function on, on top of the on top of the net liquidity function. Uh, the reverse repo facility is is the kind of the most sort of um, I think it's the, probably the, the hardest thing to forecast in the context of all the different puts and takes on why net or reverse repo facility um, a exists and b is uh, you know kind of experiencing large or small uptake. Um, the primary factor uh, of that driving that is we you know we continue to see a shortage of T bills in the marketplace as evidenced by the negative spread between money market rates and T bill yields. And as a function of that, investors looking around realizing that the highest yield on the block and also the safest place to park capital is actually at the Fed. And that's an issue for the markets because again, when you park money at the Fed, it is not rehypothecated. It's not lent back out further out. There's no daisy chain of, of collateral lending. Um, that sort of benefits asset markets and benefits the economy. It's truly a black hole uh, for excess liquidity in the system. So um, it's our belief that based on the the continued path of interest rates, again, you know, it's one thing for markets to price in money market rates, euro dollar futures, overnight index swaps, Fed fund futures, et cetera, to price in what they think the market rate is going to be. It's another thing entirely for reserve managers at funds, companies, et cetera, to look around and see a realized yield. So again, we're going to get another 75 basis point rate hike next week. We're following that up by, let's say, 50 to 75 on December 14th. And so the attractiveness of that Fed facility is going to get increasingly attractive to the extent uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen continues to sort of restrict Treasury bill supply in the coming months. And by all indications from the previous uh, quarterly refunding announcement guidance that we got, and by all indications from her guidance that we received on, on Monday the 24th, um, about, you know, sort of market functioning, et cetera, it's unlikely that she sort of breaks rank in this sort of coordinated inflation fight uh, that we're seeing in the U.S. government. So it's our belief that reverse super facility balance will likely to continue to trend higher um, over the over the next few months as well into year end. And then you sort of have to think about it from the lens of the Treasury General account. Now, that this is the least, in our opinion, forecastable part of that sort of equation, if you will, um, because, again, so much it, it, there's so many different puts and takes, you know, the timing of tax receipts, the size of tax receipts, you know, different spending outlays, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, hard, it's impossible to get your sort of hand around that. But one thing that's really helped us throughout the year in terms of projecting that liquidity and ultimately some of these outcomes in the market, which is understanding that, you know, yeah, Treasury, Secretary, Treasury Secretary Yellen last fall guided to $500 billion as the floor for the Treasury General account. Um, really on the other side of all the kind of debt ceiling drama that we experienced um, in that particular interval. So um, we know at you know roughly $600 billion, there's not much juice she can really add to it if they're going to, you know, they're going to be consistent with that, um, with that guidance. So um, it's our belief that net liquidity set it lower. And as a function of net liquidity heading lower, it's unlikely that we, you know, again, all of that does is reduce the scope for these sort of flow oriented dynamics to take the market higher. You need to see a positive inflection in macro fundamentals, namely through the lens of net liquidity, um, that to really get get the markets kind of on a sustained rally. Yeah, it's a bit like an elastic band, isn't it? Like if you get stretched too far away from what that model is saying, you feel more confident about playing the mean reversion back towards that level, basically. Oh, we clearly can dislocate 400 points on the S&P away from it, right, in the short term, so yeah. like we did in uh, August. Yep. Okay, going going back to energy then, and this is obviously um, TG's um, area of expertise. Um, so you, you're clearly bullish on crude, um, and we think that once the SPR offer goes away, there may be some pretty violent rapid repricing in that market because of the supply-demand 
uh, imbalances that, there, that may be there. What about the gas market, right? So you're clearly seeing a very, very fast pullback in, um, in TTF. And that's filtering through to US natural gas now as well, right? It's just blasting through support. I know Darius isn't going to want to talk about this. <laughs> I'll talk about it. <laughs> hey, we, we get yeah, trades we wrong. We're not Bernie Madoff. That's right, man. We got exactly. plenty of trades wrong this year, by the way. <laughs> and those are the best ones to talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's where you learn. So what, what do we think on that gas? Do we think uh, this thing's got more room to the downside? Do we do we like it longer term? Do you think the structural issues remain? It's just a very short-term oversupply issue because they've filled up their storage in Europe and now they're actually going to end up with a too much of the stuff like what do we reckon you nailed it you nailed it imran everybody was playing for the european shortage um clearly the rally that we saw in dutch ttf to like 200 euro per megawatt hour and in the us to ten dollars um what is it per billion cubic feet um pcf um that was the, that was the europeans buying and filling storage like drunken sailors Right. That rally that we saw on the screen was actually them filling up their tanks and the precipitous fall from ten dollars to five dollars was the absence of that buyer. So as we've you know seen, they are pretty much set for this winter storage. The trade is over. The crisis is not right. And so now the natural gas trade here is unwinding. It was a crystal clear breakdown below the 200 day. I mean, it like a literally textbook technical breakdown in natural gas. To the point that, you know, I think when it went through $7, I, you know, in our Slack channel conversation, we had the conversation literally bid four to cover. This thing is done. Right. So we had all the elephants out through the keyhole so far it's bottomed at $5. And that may be the low for now. But the reality is, is that we're still running below um, five year averages and storage of natural gas. The crisis of the attack on supply is not going away. As you can see, there, you know, the political response has been to, you know, offer more stimulus, which is only going to be more and more inflationary, broadly speaking. So the crisis isn't over. The attack on supply isn't over. Um, they've definitely bought some time through the winter. The trade is over. And it's just a matter of time now before supply demand balances out and they start to put upward pressure on natural gas and oil prices again because the lack of investment alone over the last five years three years is enough to really really set us back in terms of getting prices down to a more affordable level that the industrial market desperately needs as you know there's some real regardless of dutch ttf natural gas coming off europe is running about 70 percent of their zinc smelting capacity they are running at about 40% of their total um, aluminum capacity, output capacity. There are petrochemical companies on oh, my camera just overheated and went off. I'll turn it on in a minute. But there are petrochemical companies that are in danger of shutting down their um, entire operation. And with some of these huge chemical crackers, Imran, shutting those down doesn't mean letting them cool off for a couple of days. Shutting them down means they are mothballed. Right. All the products coming out of them, gone forever, not coming back out of them. So, you know, that's the part where the crisis, where the rubber really meets the road. Um, and I, I got a feeling that, you know, there's already been a letter from leaders of industry in Europe that have said, you know, with, if we continue on with this energy policy, there is going to be an even more deeper industrial crisis here in Europe. So 
Um, we're almost at the point where the political pendulum can come swinging back, uh, but we're not there yet, as you can see, because it's simply because the political response has not changed. Net zero is happening. In fact, we should be doing it faster. If you want to adjust, buy an electric vehicle, collect the tax credit, which is basically spending a fortune on all um, you know, new renewable energy, you get a tax credit back, and that's your only option. So unless the option turns to, okay, you know what we should do? Let some of our local producers produce, we are still gonna be in for a serious, serious crisis in the future. It's just a matter of when. Mm, interesting. And and in terms of positioning, like um, we get the sense you're still in the name, you're still in the stocks, but you're not so much in the commodities right now. So you still have you still have some strong faith that the likes of XLE and XOP are probably the safer place to park your capital right now in the energy sector than the commodity. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, you know, my 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 you know, the big observation that I'm running my book on right now, Imran, and, and running this trade on is just pay, I, I picked this point from July 22nd, which was after one of Biden's SPR release announcements, where from that point. Let's let's do this first. The, the oil market is down 11 percent. The gasoline market is down 11%. That's what the Biden administration drew a target around, and they were trying to directly affect with this SPR release, right? From the same point in time, diesel fuel is up 12%. XLE is up 18%, right? Now, this is just from July 22nd, which is, what, four months ago or three months ago. And we've all of a sudden got this massive dislocation in all of the energy trades, right? The trade that the Biden administration is trying to get to, to work, gas and oil and paper markets, they're going lower. The stock market, the refineries, they don't want to hear about it. The refinery margins are still 5x you know, historical norms. Marathon Petroleum, Valero, Phillips 66, those stocks are on a run like they're tech stocks. It, you know, tech stocks in the 90s. So I'm just saying... You know, the, the, the market is sort of the dividing line out right now between what it wants to value and what it doesn't. And yeah, like, you know, if I keep saying that the people that get stopped out of their, uh, the portfolio managers that get stopped out of their social media, et cetera, and technology on the downside, what do they do with the cash that's left? If I'm them, I got to look at the board and see what's working this year and figure out if it's going to work between now and the rest of the year and maybe invest in that. And that's why right now the disparity on the year between technology, you know, there's some sectors of technology um, that are down 50% on the year, like internet and software, where now you've got XLE and XOP up 50% on the year. To me, between now and December 31st, that's just going to steamroll even wider. That's my opinion. Yes, there's a rotation trade going on out of tech and into energy. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, that trade has just been happening for so many years the other way. And now you've had this, this disastrous year where stocks are down and bonds are down and nothing in your portfolio has provided you any diversification except for energy, right? And so you, have, you, kind, of, you kind of have to allocate a bit into energy, right? If you're, if you're not in it, because you're trying to look for things that are going to diversify you against the, the inflation trade where bonds and stocks continue collapsing. And where else can you go? I mean, gold's not a no-brainer that's going to work, right? The only thing that's really proven itself to work has been energy. So I think you're, I think you're right. I think that rotation continues, and 
certainly the price action in the names and the sectors is showing you that there's a strong underlying bid there. Right? That's the tip of the spear right. of the inflation um, trade. That's where we had it. Anything to add, Darius? You want to, or you, you on that on that topic? One thing I would add, just behaviorally, you know, we know, you know, when you talk to investment advisors or you know, sort of, you know, anybody who's taken over someone else's account in the last few years, one of the kind of you know, kind of, uh, if you will, one of the things that uh, it's always typically discussed is, you know, when the transition accounts, like, okay, so-and-so has legacy holdings in XYZ tech stock or these tech stocks and they can't sell. They can't sell. They can't sell, you know, because they want to uh, sort of accrue the taxes and all that stuff. I wonder if that changes here in Q4 in terms of tax loss selling season. Ooh. Now, I can hear both sides of that argument. I'm not entirely sure which wins out. But I do believe this is the first time in a really long period of time where the sort of discussion from investment advisor to in client, you know, sort of, um, you know, banker to high net worth individual is actually around actually selling some of these some of these securities. So it's, uh, it's pretty mm. interesting. To crystallize the tax loss, basically. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. Because normally they'll be they'll have gains, right? Not totally. losses. Take. You, yeah. you can't pry these things out of people's accounts. I, I know yeah, I mean, funds that manage sleeves of funds around people's legacy tech holdings like it's, it's pretty yeah. remarkable yeah no i mean just behaviorally like you say my sense is that the squeeze is on right now but if it lasts till thanksgiving i think that's it's doing well because i think i think we're going to have a week close to the year not strong close to the year i mean seasonally normally we rally into year end right and whilst i think we may be rallying into midterms and even into, into thanksgiving because of the setup I've got a sense this year is going to end quite badly. That's just my, and, and that's my, let's call it my spidey sense, right? It's just uh, from looking at the markets for 20 years, you kind of, you kind of get a feel for ebbs and flows. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if this one ends badly, right? Is there anything um, that sort of like sticks out in your process that sort of makes that spidey sense tingle more than others? Um, it's just a sense where partly, you know, that everyone's trying to play the squeeze. Everyone's trying to play the rally. And I, and I feel that, when that happens, it does come, but it comes very early and it comes very quickly and it doesn't last very long, basically, right? So I think that's the setup. I think, like you said, everyone looked at the summer squeeze into August and doesn't want to miss it again. And now you've got the big bears like the Michael Hartnitz and the Mike Wilsons of Stanley's and Bank of America, even they're throwing in the towel short term on the bearish mood and saying, yeah, the squeeze is coming. And you've, you've pretty much got a consensus bear market rally here. And when it's that consensus, I struggle, A, I struggle to see how far it's going to go, and then B, how long it's going to last, right? So there may well be, as Goldman says or estimates, like 200 billion worth of buying to do from CTAs. I don't know. But they're probably going to do it pretty quick. And if they don't do it, the market's going to front run it anyway pretty quick, right? And then it will kind of be done. So like I say, if we, get, if we pop our heads above 4,000 between now and Thanksgiving, I'd take it as a Thanksgiving gift. And I'll be launching launching some Delta into it. That is a Black Friday deal if you've ever seen one. Black Friday. Yeah. I don't it, think I don't see the market until like the end of next year again. Like that, think about that level in the context of where we're headed from a cycle perspective. Sorry to me to cut you off, Tony. Just one quick no, no, go here. Point. Go. Like we're we're going to get the pause rally. I'm not sure. I, this one feels more flows related as opposed to the pause rally. We could get a pause rally from, let's say, I don't know, 3,400 on the S&P, 3,300 on the S&P. Mm. We might not even get back to 4,000 on that pause rally 
before markets look around at some point in the first second quarter, first half of next year and say, well, no, wait, we still have a recession ahead of us. Right. Mm -hmm. To me, I think, you know, you get 4,000, you have to be leaning on that on the short side, in my opinion. I think Tony, I think Tony's going to disagree with us. Go on, Tony. What are you saying? Well, no, not, not necessarily disagree. I just, you know, Imran, I wanted to, to, you maybe slightly disagree with the idea that everyone is playing this short covering route. Like I, I don't feel I, I always know one thing about when I'm trading and that is I know when I am with the consensus and I get, I mean, you know, we are just breaking this bubble in bearish sentiment that is, I think a yeah. little bit bigger than you're giving credit for. Right. I mean, like Jared Dillian is one of the masters of this game. And he pointed out a tweet the other day that was like, nobody in the world is bearish enough. This is like end of the world kind of stuff. And you look at it and you're like, whoa, like they're like, this is from a serious human being, too. You know, and so I'm just saying, like, I feel like that bearishness is has been as exquisite as I've ever seen it. And then when I think back to 08 and 2000, and tried to, you know, trade some of those technical rallies on the retracement. Some of them went ripping through every level I had before they failed and then turned and made new lows, you know? So I'm just saying bear market rallies have a, a habit of reeling in new bears. I mean, excuse me, reeling in new bulls. And you've always got that retail factor that is, you know, not really playing this rally from the long side or preying on markets with an E right now. They're praying with an A saying, oh, my God, is Facebook ever going to come back? Right. Is Google ever going to yeah, come I, back? And so. I agree that no, there are a fair amount of asset, like active asset managers who are probably too bearish and too defensive. But you've got to couple that with the fact that skew is as flat as it has been all year. Right. Mm -hmm. So the guys who are underweight and bearish as hell are also hedging that upside tail because they paid mm -hmm. up calls. Like S and P calls have never been this expensive. They are insanely expensive, right? So normally okay, fair, the street yeah. is long stops and they buy puts to hedge themselves. The opposite is going on right now. Well, based on where index skews trading. So whilst I agree sentiment is bearish and positioning is light, that's spot positioning. But option positioning arguably is hedging that, which then makes me think, so if everyone's bearish but hedged for that upside tail, does that upside tail need to be as aggressive? And that's where that's where I'm not sure on that on that view. But that's why I don't think the rally is okay. going to be quite as spectacular as we saw in August, because that wasn't the case. The skew wasn't going so crazy flat in August as it is now, which which to me looks like a lot of institutions are buying the arse out of calls. And on that Very note, we've got point. Brent. We've got Brent from Spotcast. Right on time. Are you kidding me? Bang it, bang on time. The minute we start talking about options, he comes in. He's like, he knew, he knew it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have much value to add to anything that took place before. I'm just guessing. Well, you are the star of the show now, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thank you, guys. I, Imran, I did, man. I don't want to segue. I did email you yesterday. I was going to be a little late, so I apologize for that. You emailed me, did you? What did you yeah. say? Yeah. So I'm not just that kind of guy that just doesn't show up. Yeah, no uh, worries. Yeah. I, I, must, I must have missed it. No worries, man. Um, this, this is great TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so inside look Very now. Um, but what do you, yeah, what are your thoughts? Because you obviously analyze the option flows and stuff. You're probably even closer than I do. So what? Uh, what's your sense, Brent? Yeah, the uh, so I, uh, there's two things. One, I saw this chart. It's a macro chart, but it was the seasonality basically into elections. And 
Uh, I put it up on Twitter, but if you look at the way that the market rallies from right now to into midterm elections, it's a vicious, vicious rally. And whether that's like the equivalent of someone draining the SPR to get oil prices down into the election, uh, maybe there's some kind of similar phenomenon trying to gas the, <laughs> the stock market into uh, um, into elections. I don't really know. But the point is that uh, I think there's just this window right now where markets tend to rally favorably. And right after options, monthly expiration on Friday, we've seen call positions come in. Imran, I heard that you were talking about SKU and how there's quite a bid to call positions. Um, and so we're now seeing like 3,800 for us is this equilibrium where it's like calls are building up over that level. And if we if we're, if we close up over this level, we're at 3,850 right now, uh, then that's a really strong tailwind to markets. And you just don't want to short that, I think, right now, because there is no reason uh, really for the market to reverse at this point. Uh, we've had puts just get demolished into October expiration. Um, there's kind of like an all clear for like the next week, I think, uh, into FOMC. And then the other phenomenon that is really kind of difficult to analyze on any kind of day-to-day -day basis is how much volume is taking place, options volume is taking place in the shortest dated expiration. So last week, we measured a couple of times uh, where 40 or 50% of the options volume in the S&P 500 was for that day's expiration. So like you come in and 40% of the volume for the S&P was just for the, uh, the expiration that takes place that day. So it's pure day trading volume. What is, that, what is that in dollar notional? Would you know what that number is in dollar notional? Uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously billions, right? That's a, that's a yeah. great question. You, you I mean, it's in probably in tens of billions, no? Like, yeah. Didn't they buy, the 18 on, numbers are too big and they're having to pare that down, but I'll <laughs> have to look at that. Didn't Sorry, they buy $20, didn't didn't they buy $20 billion worth of puts and, and uh, $6 billion worth of calls last Thursday? Wasn't that the total yeah. emotional Well, amount? when the market was on the low last Friday, uh, when markets were on the order less two Fridays ago, we were at 3,500. Someone came out and spent $30 million buying the S&P calls that expired that day, the 3,600 calls. And so those went from around a dollar each, 50 cents each contract value up to $80 a contract at one point that day, right? In the market that, that rally. Was the trade of the year. That was the trade of the year, what they did, basically. A one-day option. Yeah. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They spent 30 million premium on that. Are you serious? That's what uh, that's what someone when we talked on, with the options expiration show, someone had had sort of mentioned that. So, uh, you know, wow. and some people say, well, this is risk management, right? It's dealers hedging intraday using calls to hedge instead of futures, and and I think there can be some of that. I don't think this is a lot of retail flow. I think this is institutional flow. What I think is that people have learned how to use this leverage uh, as a as a momentum trade, right? Like I can yeah. suddenly buy. 20,000 at the money calls that expire in two hours and force the market higher. You know, mm -hmm. if I have a fairly, I don't even need that sophisticated of a model really to kind of figure out where I can exact the most leverage. Mm -hmm. um, and I bring that up because you have these situations today or the last few days where, you know, volatility kind of comes out of nowhere. And there's some great charts going around that say that market volatility now in up days is higher than market volatility in down days. It, and that it is in correlation it is. with the fact that. This day trading volume, I just call it day trading again. Maybe it's sophisticated flow, which I think it is. It's not necessarily just retail punters. Um, I think that just exacts it, – it, it's a lot of leverage, and it's a lot of stuff where we're all sitting here, and then out of nowhere, we could just get kind of like a sucker punch where the market's just up 2% on just the fact that someone came out and started buying the crap out of you know zero DTE calls. The you point know, you made – <laughs> they're, they're over in Greenwich, uh, you know, firm name change. 
I think we all know what we're talking about. It's very valid. Yeah. I mean, like, because um, I know firsthand from friends friends of mine who are still on the in institutional side, they use shorter dated options than they've ever used before to hedge their books. And the reason they do it is because daily options trade now, right? Like a few years back, you didn't have every single day with an S&P expiring. But now that you do, and the leverage that you get from those one-day options, and the fact that the market is so data-driven right now, because you've dropped all the forward guidance, and it's like every data point matters. So a few years back, give a shit if the CPI comes in 50 bips worse or better, right? Market doesn't care. Now the market moves 3% on a non-farm or 4% on a CPI, right? And, and it's only 0.2 different from expectations for crying out loud, right? That's how much the market is sensitive. So if you're not using daily leverage, daily options to protect yourself, you're a moron because the basis point cost of that one-day option is so small for the protection it gives you over that number that you know has asymmetric risk for the market, absolute no-brainer. So that, that's why the volumes exploded into the billions because the instos have cottoned on that this shit's the wrong price and I can protect myself quite cheaply. Right? It scares the shit out of me because think about what this means. If there's going to come a time where everyone's leaning on one side of the boat, you know, from the next, let's call it next two or three days, um, data point, data release, economic calendar perspective, yeah. and it goes the wrong way. Yeah. And then you totally. create the gamma squeeze to the downside as yeah. a function yeah. of everyone, you know, kind of um, unwinding those hedges. So right. to me, yeah. it's, it, it, it creates instability in the marketplace. It creates, yeah. it does. And, it creates leptoketosis moves, yeah. whatever you want to call it, right. fat right. tails. It creates the fat tails. Definitely. Right, because your 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 friends, Imran, uh, hedging themselves that that just adds convexity to the market for somebody, right? Somebody's got that risk, uh, even though the firm is hedging smartly, arguably, right? That that means somebody else has got to hedge the other way. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's and, right. And so we were looking like weaponizing, at you call it weaponized gamma in that it's just it's social data. It's so big the dealer provides liquidity, but if the move happens, they're forced to go with it, basically, right? And the futures just accelerate. Right. And, and, and what right. would be a 2% sell-off turns into a 4 to 5% sell-off, basically, right? So. Right. And we we put on Twitter, you know, like, this is the recipe for a flash crash because, and I and I feel that way because you could easily drop a scenario here where, like, some real headline comes across when everyone's, like, expecting one thing and then, you know, it completely shifts. Darius, just as you mentioned, people are like, oh, Brent, you're fear-marketing stuff. I'm like, we could crash up as a result of one of these triggers, just like we crashed down. But these, these technical positioning elements are, you know, look, the, the wheels could come off the bus really quickly. And that market would, that, that, that move would mean revert very quickly. But as you mentioned, like a 5% move on nothing other than this positioning element, you know, quite possible to see something like that happening. I mean, the, I was reading about the Citigroup, remember, had a flash crash because someone on the Delta One desk put an extra zero on an order. It's like, you put an extra yeah. zero on an options, zero DTE order, and man, there you go. It's like, you know, you could get easily that kind of a move. So, and and I would just say last kind of point on this is that S&P call volume is at a record uh, just over the last couple of months. We've really exploded in terms of call volume. But open interest is not at a, is not at a record high right now, right? So we have, we have extreme call volume, right? Put volume is also going up, but extreme call volume and, and no real material increase in open interest. So again, this just backs this idea that it's very short dated positioning, you know, zero DTE uh, type flow. So okay, right. So people are buying literally same day calls, so it doesn't end up impacting the open interest, basically. Oh, that's that's exactly right. Right. So if all these macro funds like we're worried about upside crash protection, we would buy probably like December's expiration or a quarterly mm -hmm. or something a little bit farther out, even if it's out of the money. 
But in this case, what we're getting is people who just seem to be flooding into whatever the option is that they choose this morning, they close it by the close of trading today. Uh, mm. and so it never reflects an open interest. It's funny because when the retail crowd were doing it, it was YOLO and they were just speculating via these super short day calls. But now the Insta crowd are doing it. That's I think that's the hedge underweights. It's not so they kind of expect do, do, do you agree with that? Do you think they're expecting they're probably gonna lose the premium? But it's a few basis points, so I don't care, right? Yeah. Whereas the do you see what I mean? So because I'm underweight anyway. So if market melts down, I'm actually outperforming and I've wasted a few basis points. But yeah. the retail guys were actually spending the money that they had on those calls to try and get rich. There's quite a different dynamic, right? They're buying it for different reasons. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And, and it, you know, if you're just replacing, you know, what you'd be hedging with futures with short dated calls, then, you know, that makes a lot of sense. So what you said there, you know, really seems to me to make some sense. Uh, but the behavior, you know, the behavior in a way is ultimately the same. I mean, GameStop and all these other systems that, you know, became systemically important stocks back in January of 2020, uh, 21, excuse me, um, you know, everyone was going nuts, right? And, and everyone was really freaked out about this. Well, now you got like, kind of the same thing happening in the S&P options. And you're kind of like, well, you know, like no one really cared about this until something broke, right, with GameStop. And now it's like, it feels to me like a very similar thing where, okay, maybe all that volume backs off and we calm down, but, you know, like the, the odds of that causing a market dislocation here, you know, feels very high. Um, and you can get, you know, these moves that people think are real, which are just, you know, like exhaust from hedging flows that are, that are coming in the market that have just gotten, you know, too short dated, right? That that invoked too much leverage. So you brought up a good uh, analogy. Who's the Melvin Capital in this in this scenario? And it, it, is that systemic? I mean, it's a great it's a great point. I, I a lot of our customer base, you know, there's a lot of guys who retail guys who like to sell short dated options. Like they think the vol in general is higher for those, and they like to sell those. And that's a, I think that is a very large component of who historically traded the shortest dated options. So. I think those guys are at risk of getting run over because, you know, if you're selling today's, you know, calendar spread or whatever, or condor or whatever you may do, and and you're wrong, like you got to suddenly run for cover, right? So you got to flip to buy uh, if you were short puts, and that just adds to the downside pressure. So I don't think that a, a real fund can put too much size, speculative size into this, right? Um, I, I just think that there's not a whole lot of investors out there that are want to hear that your fund is slinging around you know, one day's to expiration options or whatever. But if you're hedging with it, it can make some sense. Um, yeah, and so I you, mean, I, yeah. my, my take on that would be that the dealer, I mean, it's the dealers that are providing liquidity, right? So if the instos are buying it, you might get a bit of retail selling. But like, if we're talking about yards, we're talking about billions of notionals, it's the, it's the liquidity providers who are providing. So, so they're just running big short gamma risks, right? And you're seeing that in the erratic price behavior, right? You're seeing that in the intraday vol that, because dealers are short gamma, right? And they're having to chase it whichever way it goes. So I think it's just that dynamic. So the, the risk gets translated through to the to the price swings quite quickly. Whereas when you had a Melvin Capital, they were just sitting there short a load of stock. They're not buying it back every single day. They're just running a big short position. And after a breaking point when they lost too much money, they're forced to cover. That's not how dealers operate, right? When dealers sell optionality, they are hedging it on a daily basis. So they're going to get chopped about a bit on intraday moves. But in general, if it keeps trending higher, they're covering it, covering it, covering it all the way up. And all that you end up really seeing is market's going to sort of accelerate. A, a, you know, a 1% day turns into a 1.5% to 2% day. 
And also implied vol goes up on the upside because that's where these guys are getting taken short. So they have to mm. they have to reprice that optionality. They maybe change changes a few hands. Some dealers throw in the towel and buy it off some other dealers. And just that bid for calls that we are seeing translate through to the market is what you're seeing basically, right? So I, I don't think there is like some big structural short that's going to get blown up on it. I just think you're just going to see it manifest that way into the market, the way we're seeing it seep into the market now. Yeah. Really? You wonder maybe like a Delta One situation or, yeah, I don't know, maybe something like that, like a kind of like interdealer type activity. I'm not sure. But um, let's just go back towards something that obviously me and Brent, <laughs> Brent have been chatting a lot about the bowl side. But what do you guys fancy? What do you guys think about uh, the dollar wrecking ball? Tony mentioned it earlier, but now we're getting a bit of a pullback in the dollar, obviously. But but when we were at the highs of the dollar, we were seeing quite a lot of panic from, you know, you had, the, you had the SMB with swap lines, you had the Bank of England with intervention, you had the Bank of Japan with intervention. I mean, all hell was breaking loose, really. So, so do we think the dollar's done? Do we think we've seen the high in the dollar? Do we think, I know we think yields are probably still going to have another go against. Does that mean the dollar's not done yet and it's going to actually make new highs? And what's the sort of timing around that? Darius, let me start with that one. Yeah, so I mean, you know, one thing you have to start off is there's a couple of things I'd say. You know, when you're thinking about currencies, they operate a little bit different than sort of, you know, other types of, you know, markets, securities markets, particularly bond stocks. The currency markets tend to trend, they tend to have momentum, and you typically need like big catalysts and reverse momentum. Um, and so, you know, generally speaking, if you're looking at a currency chart and it's got positive mo, you're better, you're better off, you know, sort of fade or not trying to fade that positive mo. You know, we built a few models here, 42 Macro, that try to explain what's driving the currency market and, you know, kind of in reverse order, you know, the terms of trade shock that we're seeing abroad in Europe is, is pretty much, you know, got a probably, a or not probably, it's, it's roughly around a 0.4 R squared in terms of, um, you know, kind of explaining what's happening in the currency market. And then when you look at, you know, sort of the, the, the fiscal shocks that we're seeing, particularly in places like UK, et cetera, you know, that's got about a 0.5 R squared in terms of explaining the currency market. The model that has the best sort of expected predictive power in terms of explaining what's happened over the last year in the currency market is the, you know, kind of the most obvious model, which is, you know, kind of real interest rate differentials and changes therein. And so as long as we continue to see the Fed out front in terms of policy repricing, it's very likely that the dollar continues higher. Now, we're at a particularly interesting interval. And I say this because historically we've seen the European currency, the euro, Trade positively alongside its growth dynamics. You know, it's it's much more it's much more correlated to rising growth expectations than it would be to rising real interest rate differentials or the compression usually uh, in the interest rate differentials between the U.S. Uh, and, and Europe. And so, one thing that is sort of, I would say, new, and, and I think we the markets are still trying to digest this, is the fact that we're seeing a pretty substantial fiscal response to the energy crisis in Europe. I want to say Germany's. Um, outlined about 200 billion euro that's about five percent of german gdp you know you got france at another 100 billion euro i think that's two and a half three percent of french gdp and the market is not repudiating it the same way that the market repudiated uh the british pound and part of the reason the market's not repudiating that is because again the euro is a structurally current account surplus nation it's not a twin deficit nation like um the, you know the you know the, the, the uk which needs to you know have this currency sort of re reprice and revalue to sort of you know, attract global capital to, to finance that, that twin deficit. So I think this is potentially positive for the euro. Mm -hmm. I still think we're, we have a few more innings left to go in this dollar bull market scenario. 
But one thing I think the markets are smart about right now, based on everything that I've I've um, I've outlined, just based on the general history of currencies and how they operate, you know, you're seeing open interest in the euro. Looking at the euro USD net non-commercial net length, you know, open interest is or, or total open interest rather, total open interest is in the one percentile of the trailing one year. Um, you know, if you look so at the British short, pound, everyone short euro, right? No, 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 no. So they're actually net long euro. If you look at um, speculative yeah. net length as a percent of open interest, you know, we're at seven plus seven percent. So effectively, euro shorts have covered and covered pretty ferociously. But okay. open interest is all the way down in the first percentile of of, of 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 total open interest over the last year. That compares to eighty five eighty uh, fifth percentile for the British pound, we're in the ninety second percentile for the Japanese yen. So effectively. The markets have really gone and closed out their euro shorts, um, so much so that they're now net long euro. And I think this is something to, to, to monitor because, again, if we do start to see the fiscal response in, in the eurozone really pick up and influence, you know, um, you know, kind of eurozone growth expectations higher, you're going to start to see the ECB respond in kind and ultimately flow through the currency market. So we may be getting close to the dollar peak here, although I do suspect that, you know, until we get the Fed pause, the dollar's got, got momentum to the upside. Tony, what are your thoughts on the dollar? I'm um, firmly in the spectator seat, Imran. I have, uh, you know, on the bull side, on the bull side, you've got, you know, technicals, price action, where, you know, we, we you know, the dollar index, for example, finally dipped to the 50-day moving average today, and that's nice, but it's still well within trend. Um, not something I like to fight at all. And then on the other side of the coin, you know, you've got two central banks with their lines in the sand now because of all, obviously because of the dollar wrecking ball in one indirect way or the other. Um, there's likely not only one cockroach or two. And I'm kind of on the lookout for other central banks kind of stepping in if necessary. And then, you know, you've got that that sort of coordinated, lightly coordinated intervention between the Bank of Japan and uh, um, that journal article in the morning that said that the Fed would consider the pace of rate hikes after the next one or something like that. So, you know, that stuff to me lines up. And, oh, and also the Barron's cover with uh, George Washington in the front double bicep pose is always a big sentiment bomb. You know, there may be a Barron's cover curse um, component to this trade because it really, it literally hasn't traded higher since they posted that article. Um, and we'll see if it starts eroding things on the downside. That'll be good for my commodity trade. If it gets back on its bullish horse, you know that might be a headwind to my commodity trade. That's how I'm looking at it. I've got I've got uh, accountable arguments on both sides of the ball. Yeah, for what it for is worth, I, I was thinking that last week on one of my daily notes, I was saying to my subscribers that it it seemed that the TTF gas prices, the way they were going. We had PMIs in Europe this week. The market actually traded really well, even though the PMIs came in worse. So that, again, is a bit of a bullish sign. So I was thinking maybe a 102, 103 target on the euro in the short term, given the ECB meetings this week. And they've got a lot to do with regards to getting in front of inflation, right? With Some of the, some of the PPI numbers coming out of Germany were ridiculous. So, so I feel there's a little window of opportunity for the ECB to have a go at being hawkish at least trying to jawbone, especially hawkish, um, because it's not like the Bund BTP spread's been blowing out either, right? That's been quite well well behaved. So it just seems that with TTF prices coming back down, with um, with the terminal rates of 5% in the US seeming like a short-term peak, you know, there is this little window for ECB to look like the hawkish one 
and that might provide a few more big figures in the euro before ultimately i think it's probably a sell on strength but but yeah I, i'm tactically sort of leaning a little bit long on euro right now all right great um i think we we've been going for about over an hour so we're doing good uh we'll try and wrap it up um we've we've mentioned we've been kind of all over the shop kind of talking about the different topics that i wanted to cover um the only last thing i guess is if we think about sort of moving into year end beyond um you know obviously we've talked about the melt-up risk uh we've talked about the pain trade probably being on the upside in the short term i think everyone kind of seems to agree with that um but when do we think it's going to be safe to buy tech like the likes of arc the likes of maybe the semiconductors things that have been absolutely beaten up right uh is there any is there any hope or are we are we gonna have to wait until middle of next year when we've seen the whites in the eyes and we've seen the fed capitulate what, what do you think well we see retail puke Anyone big tech. <laughs> I, i'll retail go first tech? i think uh i still watch that move index we talked about it a lot, lot last time uh when i see that move index hit like 100 right now it's about 150 um you know it, as soon as we get down with 125 to 100, then I'm, I'm happy to kind of just push the money back in and, you know, hold my nose and look at it. So my fear is that the market rallies 10 or 15% before that happens. And then I'm kind of like maybe buying a top, but uh, that's kind of what I'm watching right now. I just think that until that interest rate pressure comes off and the, and the and bond ball comes down, that equities are just not going to uh, hold a material rally here. So that, that's what I'm watching for. Yeah. Jane Brad, what, what do you think, Darius? Oh, uh, so I'll answer this question two ways, right? So from a tactical standpoint, it's pretty clear that this is a market that is primed to go higher and materially higher when the Fed signals pause, right? I happen to believe this is not that particular interval. I think we're dealing with just more flows dynamics in and around the Fed and around the midterms and, you know, still in the middle of the earnings season. When that happens, and again, we suspect that pause is likely coming some point early next year, you're going to see a ferocious rally in tech, you're going to see a ferocious rally in the long bond. I tweeted out a couple of months ago, you know, bond investors should not buy a bond until they're ready to buy stocks and stock investors should not buy stocks until they're ready to buy bonds because both of those things are going to happen in terms of rallying at the same time when the Fed hits the pause button. From a structural standpoint, um, there's a couple of things that I think are, are kind of out there as boogeyman for later in, in 2023. Um when you look at sort of sector, you know, different intermarket relationships, you know, one thing we track is the high beta, low beta ratio as a proxy for overall market risk. Um, it's pretty clear that we've gotten nowhere near pricing in a recession. Um, if you look at financial conditions indices, you know, investment grade credit spreads, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we've, we've priced in a non-recessionary cyclical slowdown, but we have not priced in a recession. And history shows, you know, looking at our research, in order to get, achieve the kinds of you know, downside deviations on inflation that the Fed is targeting, you need a recession. Like you don't, these things don't come out of nowhere. And so it's our belief that the Fed is going to hack and go at this until we get into a hashtag actual recession. And because that has not been priced in, there is potentially a lower low of market risk associated with that process, that recessionary process mm-hmm. at some point in mid to late 2023. Um, I'm sure you'll rally for several months you know, once the Fed pauses and the economy is not in recession still at that point in time, which we happen to believe it won't be, um, but the process, it's going to get to a, a lower high and eventually you're going to have to sort of hit the sell button on that. And my issue with, you know, going back to your original question and I'll shut up, 
the dollar is at a very asymmetric level from the perspective of its long-term time series. And history shows that, you know, there's a few things that tend to be inversely correlated to the dollar, which is the supply of dollar credit, global growth, and the relationship between cyclicals and defensives from a sector and style factor perspective in the equity market. And so tech has gotten this real premium multiple, you know, really throughout my career, you know, kind of starting in 2011, 2012, really the last decade because of the persistent dollar strength that we've seen. And it's our belief that based on a variety of policy driven factors, not the least of which will be the Fed likely throwing in the towel on a 2% inflation target at the end of this process. Um, we do believe we're going to see a structurally lower dollar, structurally higher bond yields, and structurally lower valuations and investor demand for digital economy securities. Um, and so I think, um, you know, kind of Tony's got the right idea in terms of the trade. You know, I guess, you know, my job is to sort of try to help investors you know, think about this from a multi duration perspective. But I definitely believe where Tony's kind of generally been positioned all year, it's kind of the right, right, right. That's, that's where we're going to head for the next kind of two to three years from a structural standpoint. So to answer your question, I don't know that you the buy the dip in the tech is the right place to buy the dip. Yeah. yeah. So basically, it sounds like, yeah, yeah, it, 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 a lot, there's a lot of work to do before you feel comfortable calling a bottom in that sector. I mean, there's also the whole passive uh, investment vehicles argument, right? Such a large percentage of the passive money that's flowing into the market is going straight into tech because they're, the, they're the mega caps, they're the large caps, right? So the question is, does that passive flow of money come down as we go into a recession and less money and there's more unemployment and there's less money flowing into those 401ks basically right so do we see do we see a load of redemptions later down the line as unemployment rises that then is a liquidation event that is a large amount of capital that's parked in tech basically right so i think that's really where you want to see the bottom right yeah well just to quickly summer uh address that point part of which driven passive has been this sort of disinflationary era that's allowed the Fed to suppress volatility. It's allowed the sort of, you know, the kind of the issues that we've seen in Europe that have contributed to, you know, kind of negative interest rates there have really, you know, contributed to, um, you know, dollar strength and ultimately tech strength and, you know, associated, you know, kind of when you put those two things together, you have passive flows from a fully employed Americans is contributing to their 401k. At the same time, you have a raging dollar bull market. That is, you know, sort of investors are chasing that Swiss National Bank buying Apple, et cetera, et cetera. It was a perfect storm to get the kind of share of technology uh, market cap in, in the index weight uh, to where it was, you know, kind of at the highs of this year. And we might not see those highs again for another 20 years. Um, because, again, we're going to have a structural volatile market. A lot of investors foreign. You know, one stat I haven't even thrown out, but we've seen well over $10 trillion of international capital flow into the U.S. economy over the last couple of years. If you look at it over the last, um, you know, kind of three or four years, I mean, it, these numbers are staggering. We basically doubled our net international investment position in like the last four or five years because the U.S. has been the cleanest, dirty shirt abroad. Well, when the dollar is in a, you know, kind of a raging bear market as a function of all of these policy drivers and policy changes and some of these structural changes we may see in our labor market, then it's the, the likelihood that we continue to see, A, passive flows into tech and B, passive flows in general. It's very like it's much likely to be lower. So it's our belief that it's active, it's active from here on out, and, and active will be increasingly forced to go chase where the, the opportunities are, which is in you know kind of you know sort of the the, the cyclical sectors and style factors in the, in the universe that have been left for dead. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, in closing, why don't we just go around the room, just saying then, okay, in a nutshell, Q4 for Q4 bullish or bearish. 
So Tony, I'll start with you. It's a Q4 round table, but for this quarter, are you thinking we're going to finish the quarter higher than here or lower than here? Uh, so end of the year print. Uh, yeah, I would say the end of the year. Yeah, the end of the year print. I would say is lower from here. Um, you know, I, I still think that we're going to see like a really, really widening of uh, the yearly performance where tech finishes worse and natural resources finish better from here still. You know, and I think we see a lot of money flow into that. I think that post midterms, I think that we see a huge WTI rally. Um, and then you see stocks really get out away from moving averages on the energy and natural resources side. Um, you know, I think that there's somewhere in between now and then we get to that pivotal point in the S&P where stocks, you know, turn and could end the year, you know, right on their ass with, you know, I love the idea that Darius brought up with like, you know, where's the tax loss selling going to be now that you've got real losses on the books, right? Tax loss selling was, you know, was a cute conversation when, you know, your stock was down three or 5%. This year it's down 50 you know, so it's going to be a really big decision to see how that plays out. But that's really it that I, I don't um, don't want to get too far out ahead of myself. But I think generally speaking, because the S&P is weighted most heavily with technology, that the last print of the year is lower. But natural resources live through that and trade higher. Sounds good. All right. And uh, Brent, what do you think? I think we rally into the election and then sell off after. So uh the low, I'm looking for a low, uh, Christmas low this year. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. Okay. Darius? That was uh, one of my, that's one of the calls I made in my early in my career, uh, earlier in my career, not early. Um, that kind of created a talking head personality out of me was that, that Q4 call in 2018. Um, right. They have a lot of similar market dynamics, um, a lot of sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say tax law selling. I think it was more sort of um, investors taking down gross um, into what was a shock. Clearly, investors have already taken down gross, and we're seeing that obviously um, in the in the in the call skew data, et cetera. Investors are really hedging for upside protection again because risk works in both directions, you know. So that protection is giving them um, um, protection against upside. So, but one thing I would call out, and I'm pulling this up now, I'm kind of I'm filibustering as I pull this up, I'm a boomer, but <laughs> you know, we haven't necessarily seen you know hedge funds do poorly this year. You know, if you look at the global hedge fund index, it's only down 4.6% year to date. The equity hedge fund index is HFRX indices. It's only down 4.3%, right? That compares to the S&P that's down, what, 23, 24% even as of, uh, to, oh, no, we're, we're only down 19% um, as, of, as of now. So, yeah, yeah. So okay. it's, 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 this asset class is working. It's doing for investors what it's supposed to do. Now, it's not generating positive absolute returns, but it's not generating negative enough absolute or relative returns to suggest that we're going to see a mass exodus out of this asset class. And if we see a mass exodus out of this asset class, then you're probably going to see a lot more selling. Uh, sorry, if we saw a mass exodus out of this asset class, then I think we would see into the end of the end of the year kind of institutional career risk management, which is fucking I'm already down a lot. I got to YOLO it and just try to hope for a good year. I don't think the the, the, the behavioral dynamic exists for that. Because in, on a relative basis to the market, hedge funds are actually having a great year. And mm -hmm. so I don't think the YOLO desire is there. And so ultimately, I think we sort of you know, are likely to track where our net liquidity forecast suggests we're likely to wind up, which is, you know, 3,200 is, is our target. Um, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to get there on 30, uh, December 31st, but I do believe we'll hit 3,200 um, at some point in the next three months. 
Oh my God, we are so bearish. <laughs> the Avengers, <laughs> the Avengers are so the bearish Avengers. Well, well the market's <laughs> down twenty percent. Bonds are down thirty percent. Bitcoin's down seventy percent. It's been right to be bearish. Let's not. No, it has. It has. Let's not. Let's not make fun of it. Funny. We're always quite grisly on this on this cube, on this round table. But yeah. I mean, I said it as well, right? I, I think we potentially get a squeeze into Thanksgiving. And it's similar to mid, that's like the week after midterms, basically, isn't it? Or a couple of weeks after midterms, and then, and then I think this market's probably toast. Yeah. So let's see. Let's see if that's how it plays out. But it seems to be four before a bit. Do of a we just do we just jinx ourselves? So <laughs> basically, the market's going to puke into the midterms and then rally ferociously into your end. Yeah, yeah. So we're all bearish. Uh, we're all bearish <laughs> with the last one, right? And then we got new lows. Yeah. We're all bearish. The market rally hard, and then we. I think we were right by like uh, five handles or something like that. <laughs> well, yeah, it was twenty percent. It was twenty percent low to high in the in the in the accused though that last short covering rally that was well worth a play. That's yeah, yeah, that's yeah, definitely worth playing, hundred percent. And you got it, you nailed it, mate. You nailed it. You did, hundred percent. You nailed it for sure. Oh, All right, okay. cool. Then you're as good uh, as your next trade. Thank you guys. Yeah, I want to thank you guys for coming. As always, it's been a good one. It's great to get you. Get you on at the end there, Brent. I'm glad, and you you rocked up at the perfect time as well. Um, but until until Q1, I guess, and uh, I'm sure I'll speak to you all, all this, um, before then. But good luck, uh, and thanks for being here. Take care, guys. Appreciate you. Great job, Imran.